Hi everybody, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I'm Andrew. He's my brother. And welcome to episode 22, Meet the Tuscarora. Now, it's taken a while. Uh, for the past year, we've been doing the show and people have been emailing us saying, Why are you calling it the Five Nations? Why aren't you calling it the Six Nations? Where's the Tuscarora? And Andrew and I politely sat back and we said, Don't worry, the Tuscarora are coming. We know that there's a Sixth Nation, but they didn't join until the 1700s. So now, without further ado, we are finally going to introduce you to the Sixth Brother of the Five Nations. And uh, so let's talk about them. Okay. Well, originally, the Tuscarora were part of an Iroquoian megastructure of people that lived up in the western New York area. We mentioned before that there are many other Iroquoian peoples, including the Huron and the Neutrals and the Susquehannock and the Cherokee and the Cherokee and the Tuscarora. The Cherokee and the Tuscarora being the southernmost Iroquoian peoples that there are in North America at this time. Ethnohistorians tend to believe, based on archaeological evidence, that probably around the year 500 is when this migration from New York started spreading south down into the Appalachian Territory. And that's where the Cherokee and the Tuscarora come from. And probably by about uh, the year 600, they had fully settled in the area and built communities. It's kind of amazing that this is over a thousand years earlier from the time period we're talking about now. And they still have almost family-like relationships with the Five Nations, even though they're not part of the, the Five Nations officially. We're going to see that they still have relatively close ties to them and friendships, specifically with the Seneca. Yep. Now, you may be thinking, okay, so they left in the year 500. This is 1,200 years later. Surely the culture is very vastly different at this point, but it it really isn't. The interesting thing is the, the Cherokee and the Tuscarora both still have this matrilineal-based society where there's women clan mothers making the decisions and appointing chiefs. And uh, same deal with their, their northern cousins. They used the three sisters methods. They farmed beans, squash, and corn. They lived in longhouses, but they were much smaller and generally uh, tighter, not yeah. like these huge ones. When I look at these things in some of the early sketches, basically picture a longhouse and a yurt and kind of make like a mixture between the two. They're, they're kind of rounded, more ovals. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a domed lean-to. A big one, you know, big enough to still hold families, but they're not these massive, huge ones like we've seen before. Uh, in addition, they still hunted deer and other animals and fished. Another thing, uh, I'm not sure if you read this, why their houses were smaller. Think about it this way. Up in the Northeast, how cold does it get in the winter? And how hard would it be to keep that house warm all the time? You almost needed 100 people in there because it just would be so inefficient if everybody had their own little longhouse and trying to keep it warm. But down in the Carolinas, they don't have as big of a problem with that. Therefore, you could have smaller longhouses and you could just have maybe one family or two families per longhouse. When the Tuscarora peoples ended up settling in North Carolina, it's not like there was nobody there. When they came, there were Algonquin people there and there were also Siouan people there. And so when the Tuscarora come through, they kind of split the two into one side and the Algonquin speaking natives settle more on the East Coast side and the Siouan people are more on the south and western side. It must have been amazing for the colonists when they come over and they take all this time to start learning a language of some people 12 miles one way and then they go 12 miles the other way and they speak a completely different dialect. 
not even dialect, language. We're talking, these are language families. To, to give you the context, Russian and English and Italian and Hindi are all of the same language family, Caleb. They're the Indo-European language family. This is saying that they would be just as far removed as we are from Arabic to an Australian Aboriginal language. That would be the difference. So they're, they're totally not related at all. That being said, once the colonists come, all the different nations basically start learning uh, keywords in the Tuscarora Aracoin language. Yes, that's another thing I'm glad you brought up, Caleb. Uh, the Tuscarora, by the time that European colonists arrived, are the main power in Carolina. They're in central Carolina, and so they're not on the coast, and they haven't been ravaged as much, and we'll get to that, by disease. And since they're so powerful, all these other Siouan and Algonquin people, if they want to trade, have learned the Tuscarora language, and it's become like the lingua franca, the, the trade tongue of the time. So we've got some descriptions based on firsthand accounts of what the people looked like, and this one comes from John Lawson. They were dexterous and steady and collected in the use of their hands and feet. Their bearing was sedate and majestic. Their eyes were commonly full and manly, being black or dark in hazel color. The white of the eye was unusually marbled with red hues. Their skin was tawny and somewhat darkened by the habit of anointing it with bear's oil and a pigment resembling burnt cork. When they wished to be very fine, they mixed it with oil, a certain red powder made from a scarlet root growing in the hilly country. The heads, even of the aged, were scarcely ever bald. Their teeth were tinged yellow from smoking tobacco, to which habit both men and women were much addicted. They, however, did not snuff or chew tobacco. They plucked their hair from their faces and bodies. There were but a few deformed or crippled persons among them. Now, just like other Native American people, Caleb, they also had a clan system. That's right. Just like the Five Nations, they had uh, seven clans in the Tuscarora that we know of, and that's wolf, bear, turtle, snipe, Deer, beaver, and eel. The Onondagas also had an eel clan, but none of the other uh, five nations did. Hmm. The exact number of clans is kind of in dispute. Some people say that there were only six, and others have these sub-clans. There's uh, like a, a white wolf clan or a, a big turtle clan, but it seems like they're more sub-clans kind of deal. You're going to get nasty email now, people emailing you saying that they're part of the, the big turtle clan and you're calling them subpar. I hope that they do email us so that we can, on our next show, say exactly how many clans there are. They also celebrated different uh, festivals. They would have Thanksgiving festivals to talk about the harvest or before when they were planting. They would give invocations to the Great Spirit to make sure that he watched over their planting and when their crops were gathered. Now, were, were these holidays they celebrated similar or unique compared to the Five Nations? Probably in their own way, but... The same thing, the Five Nations, they celebrated them at different times in the season because naturally in North Carolina there's going to be different growing seasons. In fact, you had two growing seasons in North Carolina that was so far south, so obviously your holidays rotating around the crops are going to be slightly different. But the concept is the same, giving thanks and celebrating times of harvest and planting. They would also hold parties together when different tribes were coming in to negotiate peace, and they would have festivals and dancing and all kinds of other merrymaking. That being said, we mentioned that they pretty much came into conflict with everybody around them. It just seems like that that was the way that the, the world was set up. Not just in North America, but in Europe. Nobody got along with their neighbors. In Africa, nobody got along with their neighbors. Same thing here. There was constant warring back and forth by all the different nationalities. 
Now, because we're talking about the Tuscarora, we're going to have to kind of go back in time. We've worked our way up to 1700 in our narrative, but we're kind of go we're going to go all the way back to the 1500s again and kind of work our way back with the Tuscarora just briefly, so you can kind of understand their history and and how they wind up in the situations that they find themselves. We have almost no prehistory before European contact. It's mainly just, as we said before, archaeological evidence. But what we do know is that in 1513, a guy named Juan Ponce de Leon came to the Florida Peninsula. And of course, like all Europeans do, once he landed in Florida, he claimed the whole southeast United States for Spain. You know, just by walking around. Over the next few years, the Spanish would build lots of forts. Uh, Obviously, the most famous is St. Augustine, which is in northern Florida. But then they started expanding up into the Carolinas. Uh, The furthest was a fort they called Fort San Juan. And there was a native village there called Joara, which is now in Burke County, North Carolina. Now, San Juan was the furthest, as I said, of the six forts. And this one was all the way up in North Carolina. And what the Spanish wanted to do was connect a trade road all the way from South Carolina to North Carolina to Tennessee, all the way back down into Louisiana. The Spanish did things different than we're going to see that our English and our French and our Dutch and our Swedish friends have done. The Spanish kind of have this persona of almost a slave and master relationship with the natives. It's not almost, it is. <laughs> yes. They they don't come in and try to learn your culture. They don't come in and try to convert you. They basically come in and if they let you live, it's so you can be an assistance to them. When they came in and they start putting these forts in, they did not bring farmers and settlers like some of the other colonists. They came in and they expected the Tuscarora and the Siouan and these other nations that are around there to provide them with food in exchange for peace. And the Spanish kind of get on their high horse. And so after uh, several years in 1568, natives from Jaora and the region surrounding come up to the Spanish fort and they are pretty tired of the Spanish lazing around and causing problems. And so they attack the fort and all the five other Spanish forts and they kill them all. Only yeah. only one soldier escapes. Yeah, which... there was there was one soldier that was in the woods, I don't know, gathering firewood or something, and he looks looks in the distance and sees the the fort completely overrun, and there so there's literally one survivor out of all of these forts that makes it back to say what happened. Up until we started doing this show, I never knew that the Spanish were in the Carolinas. Neither did I. After this happens, they don't ever come back. They say it's not worth it. They abandon their one fort they have left on the coast. I wonder what it and cost to send that many men up there to build all these forts, to you know, send them across. You know, They must have lost just a ton of money and expense in doing this. But they also looked at it and they realized, well, it's South America and Central America where all the gold and silver mines are. Uh, they were looking for silver in the Carolinas and had found a little bit, but they realized yeah, it's not worth, our, not worth our trouble. So... They up and leave, and the Native Americans are like, yay, yay, they're gone. Good for us. But there's a problem. If you remember in our, what do we call it, Dawn of Doomsday episode, Mm -hmm. the Spanish are gone, but sadly they leave something. They leave several things that cannot be taken with them when they retreat, and that's all of the European diseases. Yep. Especially uh, a lot of it could linger around because the Spanish brought different cattle animals, uh, particularly cows and pigs. And some of these animals ended up being, especially the pigs, running loose in the wild. And now 
you've just got these disease-bearing animals that are around with you constantly. Yeah, cows and sheep and other animals like that, they would keep in pens. But pigs, these boars, they had a specific way of farming them. And that was basically, you let them free. You notch your, your, you know, your special notch in their ear, and you just release them into the woods. And then they always come back when they want food and things like that. So they can wander, you know, 100 miles sometimes. You'll see these pigs out there. And you go out and you see one and you harvest it. And then all of a sudden, all the, the swine flu type of thing is now infected your village. So over the next 20 to 40 years, they say that up to a third or half of the native population in the area died, which is on the same par as the Black Death in Europe. Just like with the Iroquois, when these diseases hit, think about who they affect the most. It's the young and the old. And the burden that this all of a sudden puts on the cultures when they lose all their chiefs, all their clan mothers, and all their children. So meanwhile, the Spanish are gone. The English try and establish a colony in the area called Roanoke, Carolina. Uh, that fails, and there's a great mystery, and you can read more about it. We're not going to talk about it here. A lot of other messy stuff happens. Uh, King Charles uh, gets returned to the throne. There was an English Civil War. They killed his father. There was a brief time of stuff with Oliver Cromwell. Again, another <laughs> thing. You can go learn about it somewhere else. Long story short, King Charles is returned to the throne. And as favor to some of the people that supported him during the revolution, he gives this area south of Virginia to a group of men called the Lord's Proprietor, and they name it Carolina after him. Yeah, that's right. And I remember reading that and thinking, how does Carolina, what does they have anything to do with Charles? But apparently it's, it's a translation from Latin. It's the Latin word for Charles. Mm -hmm. I always thought it sounded like a feminine name. Well, it is because it's female personified because it's land. Oh, okay. I get it. Does that make sense? Thank you, Andrew. Mm -hmm. Because of these group of people that back him in this revolution in England, the Lord's proprietor are given all the rights to the area we now know as the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. And these people have no interest in actually going there and ruling as any sort of royalty. But what they are interested in is mineral rights and uh, fur trade. Basically, any way that they can make a profit out of this land that they know nothing about. So as we said, uh, at this time, it's just called the Carolinas. There's no North and South Carolina. It's totally empty. There's nobody even there. Uh, but people begin settling along the coast, especially people that are in Virginia that are looking to evade some kind of uh, government oversight, start settling in the, the border areas. The problem with the Carolinas mainly is it's a swampy mess. There really is no deep water ports. That's right. You think of Carolina today, it's almost like a jewel. Everybody's always saying, oh, we're going to go to the Outer Banks. It's going to be beautiful. But what you don't realize is today, because of dredging and putting up levees and things like that, they've raised water and cleaned up swamps, filled swamps, and they've made it a really beautiful place. But at the time, the whole area is just brackish, shallow swamps, small rivers, small creeks, lagoons. So you can really get lost, and there's lots of places to go in small canoes and small boats. But if you're thinking about large boats coming over from London, there's no way for them to get to shore. So the only real place that there was was in Southern Carolina, and they set up a community that does have a deep water port, and they named the place Charlestown, or as we would call it today, Charleston, because we're lazy and like to run our words together. So it had a nice deep port, um, and so Charlestown instantly became a thriving center of commercial trade, but meanwhile, everything else is a brackish swamp. 
In fact, have you ever heard of the Great Dismal Swamp? It's great and it's dismal and it's a swamp and it spreads through North Carolina and Virginia. Now, some of the settlers there, they uh, grow many things, including indigo, which is like a dye, and they grow rice and tobacco as well. But meanwhile, people that tried to settle in North Carolina kind of lagged behind. Uh, since they had no real way to get ships in and get ships out real well, there was only so much they could do. And so, slowly permanent towns were established along the coastal waterways, and the first was along a place called Albemarle Sound. And it's kind of like this big body of water that kind of stretches out in North Carolina. The main town of Albemarle County was called Bath. I'm assuming it's named after England, the place in England, not because the people there always needed one. A lot of these people that settled Caleb, they were English and Scotch people, Irish, and even a large religious minority called Quakers. And we're going to hear a lot about them in the 17 and 1800s because they're kind of, they're looked at as uh, one of the most liberal sects of Christianity at the time. They're all about, you know, not enslaving Indians and not murdering and not fighting wars. They're, they're kind of the, the peaceful liberal Christians at the time, and we're, they're going to play a big role in uh, Pennsylvania in the coming generations. Uh, but on top of all these settlers coming over from Europe, the Carolinas were kind of unique in the people that settled there, in the fact that government was coming to all of these colonies. And what was the original thing that drove people to the New World? Mainly freedom and religious liberty. Exactly. Freedom, religious liberty. They wanted to get away from all of the wars um, that were separating the Catholics and the Protestants and all the hundreds of different Protestant uh, denominations that were forming. And the Carolinas were kind of this last East Coast area where you didn't have churches and governments telling you what you can and can't do. Therefore, there were a lot of people that moved there just because they could live their lives with their families. People that wanted to trade without paying taxes on their furs could go into the Carolinas and there was basically no government to tell them otherwise. But then all of a sudden, the Lord's proprietors, representatives show up and say, uh, no, this is run by these guys now and you got to start paying taxes. So this and you is- got to swear allegiance to the whoever it was at the time, the king or queen, and the Church of England. Yes. And that did not sit well, especially with the Quakers, because they did not believe in swearing oaths. So this is going to start making a lot of confrontations between all the different people that are settling in the Carolinas with the government and then the Indians on top of that. Uh, Let's switch gears real quick, because this is going to be a big one. Because the area in the Carolinas was a great area for growing crops, we soon saw that there was not enough people to work the land to make profits. That's right. What are these crops you said they're growing? Rice, tobacco, indigo. Indigo. These are all really high-maintenance crops. These aren't like corn, beans, and squash where you can just tend them and let them grow and be fruitful. These are things where you need to clear lots of land. You need constant fertilization because especially tobacco, after one or two years, it just takes every single bit of nutrients out of the soil. Therefore, you have to clear... Mature forests, hundreds of acres, and plant it again and do crop rotation. And you have no people. And the people you do have don't want to go out and work 14-hour days of manual labor clearing brush. It's one of the hardest jobs you can do. And so what people in England had the idea was they would get these people called, uh, what we would call, indentured servants. And so, you know, there'd be ads put out, would you like a new life in America? Well, come work for so many years, and we'll pay for your fare to cross the ocean. 
and you can come and farm and you get room and board and food to work the fields and then after so many years you're free to get land yourself. And destitute poor people or even criminals back in England see this as an opportunity and they think, oh, what, this, this doesn't sound so bad. When they get there, it's pretty bad. Um, it's hot in the Carolinas in the summer. And humid. Like we said, it's a swamp. It's a swamp. And so you've got, again, we'll, we'll point it out. Yeah, the Indians died from disease, but the Europeans were not used to this heat and not used to working in it. And so you had these mosquito-borne ailments yeah. and everything else that was happening to them as well. When you think of swamps, there's mosquitoes. And when mosquitoes, there's malaria. Yellow fever. These new indentured servants coming were dying very prolifically. It was not good. And that just led to more of a labor shortage. Now, you may be thinking to yourselves, so this is when they bring in the slaves from Africa, right? Well... Not quite. The African people are a whole ocean away. But the people start thinking to themselves, well, if only there was a way to get cheap labor and we didn't have to send boats all the way across the ocean to get them. You know any people around here that really aren't really people in our eyes that we could possibly use? In fact, we might even be doing them a favor. Now, with the Tuscarora, just like the Five Nations, they had their system of warfare where they would go in and they would capture, kidnap everyone in the town and bring them back and they'd either kill them or adopt them into their society, just like with the Five Nations. But now all of a sudden, these people that they're capturing are worth a lot more than just a replacement in their culture. Because if you think about it, if you're selling 10 deer pelts for a, a hatchet, now all of a sudden you have a captured person and somebody's telling you they're going to give you six guns. Six guns for one person. All of a sudden it becomes a lot easier to make money capturing your enemies and then delivering them as slaves to these colonies. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Yep, the English kind of have this mentality, well, they're captured prisoners and so therefore there's nothing... Oh, we're doing them a favor. Yeah. Yeah, they were like captured we... in war. They'd be killed. So it's better off that they end up working for us yeah. rather than dying at the hands of these savages. And a lot of the Quakers and people like that were saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. And and like Andrew said, that's exactly right. They said, if we don't do this, then they're just going to kill them. So we're actually doing them a favor, buying them as slaves. And the Quakers are like, why don't you pay them for the work then? Oh, no, 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 we couldn't do that. Uh, it was a real problem. Uh, people started justifying, well, slavery is allowed in the Bible. And then the Quakers would be like, but the law of Moses says uh, you're supposed to only work seven years and then give them property in a house, which is exactly what the indentured servitude style of slavery is. And so this transitions into a form of what we call chattel slavery, where you're a slave for life and there's no hope of ever getting out. Now, the Native Americans, they really didn't make good slaves. And they didn't make good slaves because they didn't really care for being slaves too much. They didn't live that far from where they were being enslaved. They are great runners. They can survive in the woods and live off the land. So they would try and escape like any one of us would every chance they got. Mm -hmm. And here's the really sad thing. Due to that, the slavers ended up saying, okay, well, these guys aren't good here. Let's ship them to the West Indies. This is really bad. There were lots of, um, especially sugar plantations, especially in Barbados, Jamaica, these other islands. 
If you want to hear about the horrors of slavery in working the, the sugarcane fields, uh, check out Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. And he does a whole series on the Haitian Revolution, and he goes into detail describing the life of the, of the primarily African slaves, but it, it wasn't any different for the Native Americans that were thrown into this. Yeah, once the Native Americans were sent there, you're basically on islands and there's no escape. And there's nobody you can communicate with, unlike now where you can flee to neighboring villages and speak to people. And here's the really sad thing. There's almost no record anywhere of an Indian ever living to return to the Carolinas after being shipped to the West Indies. Nothing. Do you think that this is causing a problem in the Carolinas? Heck yeah. And the thing is, all these different Indian nations are warring with each other to try and send slaves. And so the Carolinas have split all these factions of Native Americans against each other versus if they had united, they could really cause a problem for them. But eventually we're going to see that enough is going to be enough. This is also where we start to see the influx of African slaves starting to come in because they're realizing, well, we can send out these Indian slaves and we'll import African slaves. And same thing, the African slaves, where do they have? Where can they run? Yeah, the African slaves, most of them don't speak any English yet. They have no relationships with anybody there. So they're dropped off in this alien world, basically, and they have no choice but to just work to death, work mm -hmm. themselves till they die. Now, during this time period, there were more Indians being exported from the harbor in Charlestown as slaves than there were Africans being imported. So that tells you the large amount of numbers, literally thousands upon thousands of people being captured and exported. And you may think to yourself, well, why didn't the, the African slaves do the same thing? Why didn't they escape to the, the Indian villages first chance they got? And some of them actually did. Yeah, they did. Uh, and some of them were adopted into the tribes. Conversely, however, you're a man with dark pigmentation on your skin, and the Native Americans know that you're a slave. So they could adopt you into their nation, or they could return you to the nearest town and get a reward. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that's what happened as well. There's actually, uh, I, I came across a few uh, doing a search a couple pictures, real early ones from like the 1700s, paintings done, and they have some like black children that have been adopted and are there with the other Indian children in the village. Now at this time we mentioned there's Tuscarora, there's Suwin, there, there's Algonquin, there's these different nations there, and the Tuscarora are the biggest of all of them. But these smaller nations maybe are between 500 and 1,000 people, and when you have a 500 to 1,000 people, you really only got 50 warriors, basically. Uh, but the Tuscarora have between five and 6,000, most people think, people. So they could most likely have between 500 and 1,000 warriors, uh, which is not an insignificant amount at the time when you consider that whole colonial villages are a couple thousand people. Now, these five to 6,000 people, they're, they're spread out between somewhere around 40 small hamlets and villages, and I think they had about three larger towns. Uh, they weren't really unified, Caleb, like the Five Nations were. They were all Tuscaroan people, and they all kind of got along with each other, but they didn't have, like, a unified government. Yeah, also, there was quite a large space between their larger towns. 
so it was pretty easy to just live your day-to-day -day life and not really have big relations with these people that live 50 miles or so from you. So your system of government was mainly consolidated into your town. And that's not to say that the bigger towns didn't have influence over the area, but generally speaking, any decisions you make held down to your specific community. And because they didn't have as strong of a tie as the five nations, this really hinders them because they can't speak with a unified voice on what they're going to allow and what they're going to not allow. Now, Caleb, in the early 18th century, there's pretty much two main consolidated groups in North Carolina. There's a northern group led by a guy that's known as Chief Tom Blount, also pronounced Blunt. And there's a southern group led by Chief Hancock. Now, you call them chiefs, but these people are actually known as kings. Yeah, uh, king again being a loose term and mainly used by the English for their benefit just to consolidate to identify somebody who was the leader of the town. Even though it was, again, most likely a clan mother and then a council city decision-making apparatus, not one guy with an authoritarian rule. And we're going to see this when we start seeing some of the councils that they have leading up to the war. So Chief Blount occupied an area around present-day Birdie County on the Roanoke River. Let's see if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sure someone from Carolina will email us pretty soon. And then there was Chief Hancock, who was closer to New Bern in North Carolina. And he occupied an area south of the Pamlico River. Chief Blount became really close friends and a trade partner with the colonists, but Chief Hancock and his people suffered from a lot of kidnappings by slave traders who sold his Tuscarora people into slavery. So already right off the bat, you're seeing that these are both Tuscarora villages, but one of them is benefiting from being close and really uh, getting to improve their life by getting good trades and things like that. While this other village, not that far away, is suffering from people coming in and capturing his family and relatives and selling them to slavery. So right off the bat, you have two people in the same nation that have very different ideas on what direction they want to go with dealing with the colonists. So King Hancock makes complaints to the Carolinans, and they pretty much fall on deaf ears because, hey, they're making money from the slaves, and we don't really care. Uh, some people, though, were very sympathetic to their plight, uh, especially the Iroquois the Seneca people in particular. If you remember back in our previous episodes, Caleb, where have the Iroquois spread to now? They've launched uh, raids down into Ohio and Pennsylvania. They've absorbed the Susquehannock, and they've pushed their hunting grounds down into West Virginia. And so if you're looking at the Appalachian Mountain Range, they're right on the doorstep. And so they're sending out emissaries to these neighboring areas they consider the Tuscarora cousins, and so they're building stronger and stronger diplomatic relationships with them. And the Iroquois say, you guys need to stand up for yourselves more. So in 1710, the Tuscarora come and they have a council in Pennsylvania near the village of Canastota, which is a Susquehannock town now under satellite influence of the Five Nations. And so they hold a council with the government of Pennsylvania. They're figuring, okay, Carolina's and Virginia's not listening to us. Maybe Pennsylvania will help us out. And the Tuscarora are kind of dropping hints saying that some of them might want to even relocate to Pennsylvania because then they can get away from this slavery issue. The Pennsylvanians are kind of oblivious to this, realizing that that's really what they want. And so the Tuscarora bring eight different wampum belts uh, to be given to the Pennsylvanian government. And the first belt, they hand it to them and they say, this is from the women who asked that they might be able to fetch wood and water without danger. 
Then they hand them a second belt. This is from our children, including those not yet born, who ask for room to play without fear or death or slavery. So they're really tugging on the heartstrings here. The third belt was from the young men who asked to be able to hunt without fear of death or slavery. And the other belts talk about how they want to have a lasting peace and a good open way of communication with the people of Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is just like, oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll give you a call. Nothing really comes of it. So the Tuscarora are kind of trying to figure out what they should do. And the Iroquois are have emissaries that are kind of dropping hints in their ear saying maybe, maybe it's time to get rid of the wampum belt and pick up the hatchet instead. The Iroquois had the tendency to only let things go on so far before they fought back. And they looked at it like that's why they're still around and the Huron are gone. And all these other nations are just, you know, shadows of what they used to be. So they're basically saying, if you want to keep your land, you've got to fight for it. But they can't officially say that. Because the Iroquois have the covenant chain with the English. But uh, even though they have this covenant chain with the English, it's still hard to think of these Carolinians... Carolinians? Carolinians. Carolinians as the same people as the ones up in Massachusetts and the ones in New York. They almost look at them like they're different nations, kind of like how the Indians look at each other as different nations. Mm -hmm. And that's why they went to the Pennsylvania government, because they're thinking maybe somebody else can help us out. Now let's change over and see what's happening over in Europe, Caleb, because this is going to be kind of the match that ignites everything. So in 1710, we meet this guy named Christopher de Grafenried. And we're going to kind of see a pattern here like we have in all our other episodes where we have this guy that kind of comes from good background, good education, but isn't really doing anything with his life. So he's kind of bumbling through Europe. Uh, his father is successful, but he's not type of thing. And he's trying to, trying to make something of himself. And he comes across this guy named John Lawson. And John Lawson is the surveyor general of the Carolinas. He's the one that goes through and surveys lots and then pitches them to people to sell them uh, to, get, to get colonists to come over. And he has just written a book about the Carolinas. Especially among his time traveling with the Tuscarora people. Yes. His book is a, it's basically complete propaganda. He basically take, he talks about the swamps and calls, you know, basically calls them beautiful, pristine waters, rich, fertile soil. And some of it was true. There was good fertile soil there because it's a swamp. So you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of things decomposing and creating thick soil in this flat land. But he's basically there to try to promote the Carolinas. And he may tell some white lies in his book. To sell it. To sell it and to get people to buy the land that he surveyed. But he meets this guy, Christopher de Grafenried, and he's telling him how great Carolina is. And Christopher de Grafenried comes up with a pretty interesting idea. Yeah, um, he was staying in London at the time that he met John Lawson, and he saw that there were a lot of Swiss and especially Palatine Germans that were in London as refugees. We had talked about in our Four Kings episode, Caleb, that Queen Anne's War, also involved as the War of Spanish Succession, had thrown Europe into this huge war, really complicated, we're not going to talk about it, but what had happened was these Protestant Germans had had to flee the French armies that had destituted their towns, and now they were living 
as paupers in England, and Queen Anne, out of her loving kindness of her heart, to help her Protestant kinfolk, was supporting them with welfare and food. Yes, but de Grafenried looked at this as kind of a good business opportunity. He was thinking, wait a minute, this guy's telling me about this land in the New World that there's not a lot of people yet. Remember, this is kind of the slowest growing economy out of all of the other colonies in the East Coast. So he thinks, what if we could convince the queen to pay us to take these Protestants over to the Carolinas and set them up with farms? And who better to run it than me? So he pitches this idea to Queen Anne, and uh, he, he actually ends up becoming named as a baron. He actually gets a... That, that would be a, a royal title, right? Yep. Um, now, 1710, does that year sound familiar, Caleb? Yeah, isn't this around the same time that the four kings are visiting Queen Anne? This is the same time that the four kings are visiting Queen Anne. And we mentioned in the episode also that the four kings talk about how they want uh, mission English missionaries to come and settle up in their uh, areas in the Mohawk Valley. And the queen makes a, a request as well, and she asks that some of these German refugees, these same ones, could settle in the Mohawk Valley uh, to have a new home for themselves. And the, the Iroquois, or the, the four Indian kings, say, yes, we would love for some of them to come. And so several thousand of these uh, German refugees end up settling there, and that's where the uh, region of German Flats in New York gets its name from because of all these settlers here. Uh, but this group of Germans that end up going with the Grafenried uh, the queen basically loves this idea as soon as she hears it. She thinks, I can stop paying, you know, these people just to sit around, uh, but I can also give them a better spot in life. They can go there. They can basically serve me from this colony. They get farms. They're no longer taking up welfare. This is a win-win for everybody. And that's exactly what de Grafenry thinks until all of a sudden he's doing all the logistics of this and he finds out that it's costing him six pounds per person in sterling silver, and he's getting paid five and a half pounds in sterling silver. So right off the bat, this thing is losing money. It's in the red, right? Yes. Red is bad, black red. is good. This this thing is in the red already, and it's just going to get worse from here. Mm -hmm. Because John Lawson has told him all this wonderful thing, all this wonderful stuff, uh, but DeGroffenried has never been to Carolina. He knows nothing about starting a colony, nor do any of these German people know anything about this place that they're going either. But nevertheless, he gets them. Basically, you know, you're, you're gonna, this takes him a while, but he gets all the supplies. He gets everybody on the boats. And this would probably be a... Things might have turned out completely different if he'd gotten on the boat with them. But there was actually some more refugees that were going to be coming in uh, like a month later. Mm -hmm. So he decided to stay back and wait for the next group of refugees. And then he would meet up Lawson and the Germans in Carolina. And yeah, so he months. has John Lawson go with this first group of people across the ocean. So they set sail, and I'm sure everybody's thinking, "Oh, good, we're we're finally going to be away from being paupers in England, and we'll have a new life." But the trip from Europe to North America was horrible, and these are German people that are in this crammed boat. And a lot of them die on the way there. Yeah, it didn't help that the weather was really against them, the winds were bad, and so it took them several weeks longer than normal. I think it was more than a month longer yeah. than it normally did. Hundreds and hundreds of people died on the way. Uh, maybe up to a third of the people. 
end up dead before this is all over. And so they finally get to the coast, Caleb, and they're almost, they've got land in sight. Uh, and then they see some ships coming up to greet them. Yeah, this just adds insult to injury. A third of them have died, and they've just gotten to North America, and a French pirate ship. Or maybe a fleet of ships approaches them. And take every single thing they have. All of their tools to start their new colony, all their extra clothes, all of their money. Any livestock that they can carry. Anything that they could take, they took. And the really depressing thing is, within sight of this happening is a British ship of war. It's only like a mile away and it sees all this happening. So I'm sure they're all thinking they're going to come and rescue us. But the ship was damaged, so it was actually up on dry dock on shore, and they couldn't get out there to help them. They're just on land watching this pirate ship, this French privateer ship, which is basically, for those of you who don't know what that is, it means it's basically a pirate ship, but it's endorsed by French Because remember, the French and English are at war right now with the War of Spanish Succession, or Queen Anne's War, as we call it in North America. So if you don't have enough ships, you just tell any pirates, I'm giving you government permission to be a pirate ship, but you've got to kick me back, you know, a percentage type of thing. And that's what they do. So they get robbed. They finally get their, their ship into the Carolinas, and... John Lawson just basically drops them off at the shore with what they have and leaves. And now they're at the mercy of the other Carolinans, and anything that they have left, they pretty much sell just to have enough food to survive. There was a few Indians that they came across that actually were happy to help them, but there were so many of these people and so few Indians that there just wasn't enough for them to to support them mm-hmm. and supply them with food. Meanwhile, to Grafenry arrives very soon after because he's had no trouble sailing across the ocean and he hasn't been waylaid by pirates and he shows up and he's expecting the colony to already be up and running and when he gets there and sees the condition that the people are in he gets pissed yeah there is literally no houses built no land cleared and there's just starving germans in a heap and he is pissed at lawson yeah to keep it polite and lawson says my my responsibility was to get them here. It's not my responsibility to run this town. He was right. He was still a jerk for leaving them, but he was right. It wasn't his responsibility. But this does show some good character for de Graff and Reed. He jumps into action. He basically says, okay, here's all the tools. He uh, He gets them all going, sectioning off lots for their farms, gets them building, and then he immediately departs to go get money and supplies. Mm-hmm. He ends up maxing out his credit to do it. Mm-hmm. There's one other problem. Uh, the nice area that he had Lawson uh, give him, Lawson said it was a pristine, fine place. Uh, it's right on the peninsula of the Noose and Trent Rivers, and it's the perfect place to start a settlement. And he's like, okay, so bring us there, let's do it. But they get there, and of course, the land's already taken because there's Noose River Indians living there. That's right. Lawson had told him that this land had already been purchased. And so they would show up there and just have a vacant land to start building their colony, but there's a whole tribe of Tuscarora living there. Yep, and so there's at least, uh, he says, 20 Noose Indian families living there, and so de Graffenried is just at his wit's end, and he's desperate, and so he talks to their chief, who they call Chief Taylor, and they agree 
that they'll relocate their village and give it to the Swiss um, for some, you know, trade goods. So he basically ends up buying the land a second time. A third time, actually, he complains because he says that he bought the land from the Lord's proprietor and then he bought it from Lawson and then he bought it from the Noose River Indians. So he says he paid for it three times when in reality he should have only paid for it once from the Noose River Indians because it was theirs to begin with. Now, while this is going on as well, uh, there's trouble in North Carolina because there's an incident going on that's just picking up called Carey's Rebellion. And it's a convoluted mess. Again, you can read more about it if you want. Yeah, if but, we wanted to, we could do a whole episode just on Carey's Rebellion. But we're trying our hardest to talk about the Tuscarora here, and so we're not going to go down another rabbit trail. But suffice it to say that a guy named Carey thought that he should be governor and another guy named Hyde was appointed by the Lord's proprietor to be governor, and Carey didn't want to relinquish power, and so this quasi-civil war breaks out in Carolina just as these people are arriving. Carey probably should have been governor, though. He was elected by the people. It was one of those things where one is appointed by the Lord's proprietor and, and the other one was elected by the people in a, in a democratic fashion. Uh, long story short, Carey ends up Losing power after Virginia sends in some Royal Marines and he's shipped back to England. He's acquitted of treason, but Hyde is proclaimed governor. But Carolina, North Carolina now is really under this tension because you've got the common people that are against the government and the government's pissed at the certain faction. And whenever you have tension like this, something that it really takes a toll on is the economy. People aren't willing to lend money as much because they don't know what's going to happen. Is there some other government going to take this over and then my, my loans won't get paid back? So this is all happening at the exact time where the Grafenried is trying to start the settlement and all of a sudden there's all this tension going on. Nobody really wants to lend money. A lot of the supplies, a lot of the livestock, the price has been driven way up because these armies that have been being assembled for militia to fight in this rebellion have already been confiscated from the people and then you and while you have North Carolina split into factions you also have the Tuscarora that are really upset with the slavers coming in and causing problems and so you have all this stuff happening at once and it seems like it's only going to take one thing to set everything off one way or another and so that's what we're going to talk about next time Caleb we're not going to get into the war today but next time we're going to get into what what caused the war to start? There's a lot of conspiracy theories even on some sneaky treachery that caused the war to start. And it's not going to end well for either side. This is going to be a lot of fun, guys. I've been looking forward to doing these. Are we going to be able to do this in one episode, or is this going to be two? It might be two. Uh, we'll see. Uh, don't want to tie it down. We'll just have to see where it goes, because there's a lot of information to get to. So sorry we didn't talk about the Tuscarora too much, but... Honestly, guys, for those of you that are mad we didn't talk about it much, you'll kind of understand where we're going. These are all things that really show what causes the Tuscarora, and you really can't understand or appreciate that unless you hear a lot of this backstory stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. I'd like to give a special shout-out to my friends of the Schultz family, who are of the Tuscarora Nation, Caleb, Wolf Clan. And I would like to give a special shout-out to a, a friend of ours called Tom Griffin. And uh, if, if any of you notice on iTunes or our Facebook or our website, we have uh, a new custom-made logo. And uh, he drew that up for us. So thank you very much, Tom. So when we come back next time, we'll talk about the Tuscarora War. In the meantime, if you folks feel so 
inclined, could you please go on iTunes? And if you've not before, please sign up and leave us an iTunes review. We'd appreciate it because it helps us not only feel a sense of accomplishment and gratitude for what we're doing, but also helps us get bumped in the charts so that more people can see the show. If you've got any questions, feel free to email us at longhousepodcast.com. Uh, also, on our website, Caleb, I've posted a map of the Carolinas in the early 1700s, and it has many of these Tuscarora towns and the English settlements mapped out, so you can get an idea where everybody is to set up the war. Uh, throughout this episode, you hear us say a lot of things like, uh, you can go learn about this somewhere else. If any of you want to do that, feel free to message us, and we can point you to some good resources and books. One of the main resources we used for this podcast and others coming up is the Tuscarora War by David LeVere. Excellent book. Highly recommend it. Um, It's on Audible, and you can probably find it on Amazon as well for a pretty good price. That's not a plug for Amazon. No, not at all. But (laughs) it's just such a good book that um, I think that people would really enjoy it if they listened to it or read it. Also, please like us on Facebook. We post a lot of stuff every week about different things. And also, we're on Twitter now. Yeah, following us on Facebook or Twitter or checking out our website, it's a great way to follow along. There's only so much we can do just by talking at you through a podcast. We have links to all the characters that you come across in our stories with their biographies. So there's just a much better way to get more information and really understand what's going on. So thank you so much to everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.